started. Chris and George are, George is on a missions trip building his son a shed <laughs> down in Nashville, so he'll be back next week. But, um, let's, uh, I want to also, I want to apologize because the allergy or something has kicked in and my throat is just full of gunk and, uh, so I'm hacking and this and that, so sorry about that, but. We're in First Kings. Let's stand. We'll read in First Kings chapter nineteen. Well, hopefully you've already read this, but if not, I, I want to just read a section of it since I've entitled this uh, "The God of Hills and Val- of Valleys and Hills," just to kind of see where that's coming from. So we'll begin in chapter nineteen of First Kings. Excuse me, chapter twenty of First Kings, <clears throat> verse nineteen. And this is at the beginning of the first of two battles that are in this chapter. And we'll explain all that. Verse 19 says, So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them. And each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, escaped on a horse with a horseman. And and the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophets came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do, for in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are, and, and that's the prophets were telling him what God had obviously told them, that next year the uh, Syrians were going to come back, but in the spring this time. And in verse 23 explains why. And the servants of the kings of Syria said, King of Syria said, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they are stronger than we, but let us fight them in the plain. Surely we shall be stronger than they, because they considerably outnumbered them, and so they were a little shocked. And do this, remove the king each of his posts, and put commanders in their places, and muster on an army like the army that you had lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered and were uh, provisioned and went against them. And the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is the God of the hills, but not, but he is not the God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 10,000 foot, 100,000 100, foot soldiers in one day, and the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. You may be seated. Stop there for now. <clears throat> All right. Um, this remember last week we uh, saw uh, one thing we looked at was that we are still required to pray even for those things that the Lord had promised He will do anyway. Remember Elijah prayed seven times that the rains would come, even though he knew that was going to happen. Um, and, and so I would say you know, there's a principle there that until something happens, it still should be an object of prayer. It's like there's no just because maybe the, the the Bible reveals something to us that, that we know is, is God's will doesn't mean that uh, we can forego praying. 
Then we saw that Elijah going to Mount Horeb might be more of a formal charge against Israel for breaking the covenant than just running for his life. By the end, the Lord is commissioning him to anoint those who would bring judgment. Now, this is a view. I understand that, as I said last week. The uh, notes in my Bible, for instance, and these are solid notes. This Bible is, is written by you know people who are solid in their theology. But whoever wrote you know the notes on this account completely disagreed. He saw uh, Elijah as falling apart, going to running to Horeb, and God chasing him and getting on to him. And then he sees everything that Elijah does from that point on, including calling Elisha and and everything else as a half-hearted, like it, like Elijah's given up. And I'm thinking, well, all right, I, I, I'm not going to stake my life on my view, but I think my view is easier to show than that. I, I don't see some of that at all. So anyway, but it just shows you the difference here, and, and that's all well and good. So, you know, we need those uh, differences sometimes to help us uh, look harder to Scripture. Um. Then uh, the Lord primarily does his work of kingdom building through the preached word, not by spectacular works that evidences, as he was in the still small voice there. Uh, interesting quote from uh, Ben Franklin here that I think it, uh, maybe is an example of all this. He says, I'd rather suspect from certain circumstances that though the general government of the universe is well administered, our particular little affairs are perhaps below notice. And you know what? Um, I'm going to use that quote later on. That, that was, that wasn't, that's not really a review. But I did it just to save space, which is which was a mistake. I did put it on that screen, but uh, that's going to be a little bit later. So anyway, chapter 19, starting in verse uh, 19, we have the call of Elisha. And... As Elijah finds out, and, and I'll no doubt say it up front, we'll substitute Elisha for Elijah and Elijah for Elisha at some point. And you, so you're just going to have to, by context, know what I'm talking about. Right? But Elijah finds, and he, uh, Elisha calls him, and by putting, he doesn't anoint him, and in interest, as I said, the guy in, the, in my note says, he doesn't anoint him like he should. He puts his mantle over him in a half-hearted effort. Well, I just, again, I don't, that's a, that's a big assumption. Here he does call Elisha by putting his mantle over him, which would be his, uh, like, like a uh, boa or, I don't know, some sort of a cloth, obviously, that he wrapped around him. And, uh, and, and we see here the Lord using different kind of people in different ways. Because Elisha was a different person, and he had a different kind of ministry than Elijah. But yet, that's okay, because the Lord calls us all, gives us different gifts, different ministries. And we should not expect everybody to be cookie cutters, especially Christians and churches of, of each other. And so, <clears throat> Elijah, his messages and miracles will be more about God's wrath towards sinners. He will have a more public ministry. Elisha will be more private. He will be dealing with individuals more, uh, encouraging God's people. One died and one will not see death, we know, of course. But all this is to point out that God calls and equips people in different ways and gives them different personalities and ministries. Now, Elijah must have come from a pretty wealthy family because uh, of the amount of people and, and uh, 
yoke, different, how many yoke of oxen they had out plowing at one time. And then when he does uh, answer the call, he, in, in an effort to sever his relationship with his past, he uh, takes a, a yoke of oxen and he, uh, or might be, I think it was 12 oxen, and, uh, and, and offers them to the Lord on the altar. So, you know, that, you don't just do that unless you have a, a certain amount of, of means, right? So, Elijah seems to have come from a wealthy family, and yet he answers the call. Some have uh, connected his actions here down in, uh, well, let's just start reading verse 19. And so he departed from there and found Elijah, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with the twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. And uh, I, I think what that means is that there were, a yoke would be, a two, so you probably got twenty-four oxen, because he was with the 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 twelfth of the twelfth, right, or the twelfth of the two. However, anyway, hope you understand that. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, in other words, he understood what what was going on there, and he said, "Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you." And uh, so Elijah says. <clears throat> Go back again, for what have I done to you? And that's a difficult, for what I understand, a difficult phrase to understand in the, in the Hebrew, and that it, it, it could mean, uh, it, it could be a rebuke, but it doesn't have to be a rebuke. It could just merely mean that, you know, it's fine, do what you have to do, or, you know, whatever, not necessarily a rebuke. And, and the reason I say that is because some people look at him wanting to go back as a, a he, they compare that to what the Lord said about the one who puts his hand in the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. And so they're saying that Elisha, is, that it's the same situation. And I don't think that's true at all. Um, in verse 21, he says, And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed him on board of the flesh. I would, I would take that to be the two, because a yoke would have two in his rule with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate and he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. So I see this as him breaking ties with his family. He kisses his father's mother goodbye. He shows them respect. Um, he, he's not plowing. And looking back, he, he's burning his plow as it were. You know, he's burning his bridges and, he, and he's ready to accept this from the Lord. He realizes he's been called to be a prophet of, of the Lord. And, and so I think that's very interesting there. You know, if you've ever done any plowing, you know, you know that what you don't do when you're plowing is look behind you. You know, you, you've got to fix a point, even if you're in a tractor. And, of course, you know, today they have GPS, and, and the tractor kind of drives itself if you have enough money to buy those. But you got to line something up with the tree there, you know, on the other side of the field or something, and you got to keep your eyes on that. So the, Jesus is saying, uh, you know, no one, if you're gonna pretend to follow Christ, but you've really got your mind and your heart on this world, that's not, uh, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. And I think he's saying that's not how, that's not, you're not a Christian. That's not what Christians are. Doesn't mean that Christians don't struggle with that. But you don't have a divided heart. <clears throat> and, you know, it is, I mean, he says it what it is. And so, um, the, the man in, in Luke 9, which is what they're referring to there, is Jesus uh, is serving Jesus somewhat reluctantly. And that can't be true service. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying that we can't 
in our call to serve the Lord, it becomes very difficult, and we struggle with that. But we're, but, but not reluctantly. I, I, I don't think in my heart that with all my struggle with temptations and weakness of the flesh and all the things that we all have, right, that I am reluctant to follow Jesus. Um, I, I know that's the right thing to do. That's what I want to do. I, I hope that, that I would be willing to give my life for that. I do it gladly. And I think that's the point. Not that it's, it can't be a struggle. It's a cross after all. You take up your cross, right? It's not pleasant always. And, and I think that's what Jesus is saying there. And I don't see anything like that with Elisha. <clears throat> it's like trying to serve two masters. And Jesus is saying that none of us can feel this way um, and, and still be serving Jesus. God is too great for us to say, well, you know, I want to serve God, but these other things, I, I kind of like it, like like they're the same thing. And they're not. No, one is the creator, and one is just stuff that he's created. And so Elisha looks back in order, I think, to sever his former relations entirely. Um, he's not only leaving his parents, but he's, I think he's leaving a comfortable life. And so, anyway, that's the call of Elisha. And we won't hear about Elisha until we get to Second Kings after this. Uh, I don't think, anyway, because uh, we're going to deal primarily with Ahab uh, for the rest of the book, the next two chapters, or three chapters, but... In chapter 20, we come to an interesting chapter because Elijah is no longer part of the scene as well. There are prophets there, but they're not Elijah. And, and Ahab is a subject. In fact, he's really the subject of the next three chapters. After this, we have the, uh, Na- uh, Ahab and Naboth. Remember his vineyard? And then after that, we have another battle with, the, with that he joins with the king of Judah. Uh, and that uh, is where he dies. And, and all, what I think we're going to see here is that we've just seen in chapter 18, God basically formally casting off northern Israel. They've broken covenant, and their judgment is, is sure. There's no possibility of it being averted at this point. And now we're going to see Ahab, who's the one who brought it on, because as uh, we've said before, at, at this point, after the Davidic covenant, the king now has become the official representative, the federal head of the people. So as the king goes, so the nation goes. So if the king falls into idolatry, uh, then the covenant is seen as broken, whether the people do or not. Now, of course, we know that the people pretty much follow the king anyway. So so we're seeing the, the federal head, Ahab of northern Israel, three different examples of his idolatry and of his sin and, and, and that all that the God was just in doing what he's doing. So I think that's kind of the overview, I think, of these three chapters. And so in this particular case, the uh, Ben-Hadad, and, and Ben is the son of Hadad, Hadad being a kind of a, a generic term for the king of Syria. So the son of Hadad is the king. Uh, he gathers an army together, not just a little army, but a big army. And uh, 32 kings uh, were with him, so probably kings of city-states or, or, you know, some way, uh, the horses and chariots. And he went up to Samaria to fight against it. And what he says here in verse 2, and he sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, I... O king, I am yours and all that I have, which is interesting that he just kind of, you know, but he, remember, 
Ahab is not a believer in Yahweh, so he doesn't believe that he's got any kind of God who's going to defeat this great army. So he says, okay, you know, whatever. I, he he kind of maybe knew it was, that was it. <clears throat> but, um, in verse 4, the king of Israel said, As you say, my lord, I am, O king, I am yours and all that I have. The messengers came again and said, Thus has been Hadad. So they had gone back and they told Ben Hadad this and Ben Hadad said, well, you know, if he'll do that, you know, and kind of give us that without a fight, maybe he'll do more. Or at least that's one possibility here where he says, I sent to you saying, deliver me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time and they shall search your house and the house of your servants and lay hand on whatever pleases you and take it away. Um, well, you think, well, doesn't his wives and his children and his money please him? And then he asks, but it seems like Ben-Hadad is kind of, you know, he's looking for a fight. And uh, this is way too easy. Uh, but another way, so that's why he does that. Another way to maybe look at this is that, uh, well, that, you know, I got that, but I'm going to send my soldiers now into every house, not just, at, before it sounded like it was just been, uh, the king of Ahab's house. I'm going to send them into every house, and they're just going to take whatever they want. You know. And, and interesting enough, at this they balk. So Ahab was willing to give up his family and his money, but at this they balk. And, and it's, the commentators are agreed. It's a little bit uh, interesting to, uh, not sure what really is going on here, but, um, and again, I think he's looking for a fight. And uh, so that's what he gets. And, and of course, all this was going to, from the Lord's hand anyway, the Lord wanted it to happen this way. Um, <clears throat> but, then he did, um, in, in uh, getting away with, at first, the first offer, and getting away with that so easy, though, and then going a little bit further kind of reminds us of the way our sin nature works and sin in general, right? We do something and you know, we get away with it. Nothing seems to have happened. And so we do a little bit more. We get a little bit further involved in it. And that's kind of how sin can often be, the progression. Um, <clears throat> for, for some, you know, they start with marijuana and then it, it becomes LSD and then cocaine or shooting heroin and all this kind of stuff, right? We started, don't even get to be talking about gambling, how that starts with just the lottery or some innocent, or I would say it's innocent, but little thing, and, 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 and it becomes an addiction, right? And, it, and that can just, there's all sorts of things that we can think of. It's the same progression in Romans 1, where once you reject God, it turns into all sorts of immorality. You know, not just sexual immorality, but homosexuality, and then all sorts of depravity. It goes on to say, once you start, once you give in to sin, it's your sin nature, there's just no end to it, unless God saves you. <clears throat> and so, it's just interesting, you know, Ben Hayden asked for something pretty big, and it comes so easy that he said, well, I'll just do a little bit more. The problem is, had he just stopped with his initial uh, request, he would have gotten those things. He, he, he could have gone home and he wouldn't be dead or he wouldn't have been defeated twice. 
over the next year, right? So he just couldn't stop himself. And, then, and so then, then the uh, elders uh, advise Ahab, okay, he's gone too far, which again, it seems like a weird line to draw, but he's gone too far, so you have to stand up to him. And so he, so he basically tells Ben-Hadad that, well, uh, no, we're not doing that. <clears throat> you know, you, you've gone too far. And so, um, in verse 10, Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, The gods do so to me and more also, if the dust of Samaria will suffice for hands full of all the peoples who follow me. And uh, the king of Israel, you know, Ahab has a great quote here. This is, of course, this is typical military blustering, you know, and, and bragging. But but here, uh, Ben-Hadad basically says, you know, you've sealed your doom. And uh, Ahab says in verse uh, 11, Tell him, let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off, which is just one of the great, you know, uh, comebacks of all time, really. And it's pretty obvious. Don't don't talk about, don't boast about what you're going to do. Do it. And then you got something to talk about, right? And, you know, how many times we see this played out in, in you see it on sports teams. You, you see it in, in all sorts of life. You see it sometimes in us. Talking about how bad they're going to beat somebody else, and then they ain't the ones who get beat, right? <clears throat> and it's just it's this silly pride that, that, that makes us do that stuff. And so, <clears throat> Ben-Hadad hears this while he's drinking with the kings in the booths. And he says to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. So, um, that's, that's the first part here. And then, in, uh, starting in verse 13, a prophet comes to Ahab and tells him that the Lord is going to give them into your hand. And, and of course, there's always a reason. So, so that you, Ahab, and later he'll change the you to plural, basically so that you and, and the nation will know, as if you shouldn't already, that I'm the Lord here. I'm the, I'm the true God. You know, he's already shown it several times, but he does it again. He's very gracious here. And uh, and I'm going to give him into your hand. And Ahab says in verse 14, well, by whom? Because we don't have it. We don't, we don't have just a few thousand people. And this is hundreds of thousands. They couldn't even do an estimate to know how many uh, is in his army. And so the, the Lord answers him by saying, the servants of the governors of the districts, which happens to be 232, in other words, I want you to gather as the leaders people who aren't even uh, they're they're uh, politicians. They're not warriors. I'm gonna let, I'm gonna do it in a way because God doesn't do anything. Uh, he, he likes to do things that display his his power, right? It's like the when Christ came and born in a manger uh, as a babe. God likes to look weak to show that even in his weakness, he's stronger than men. And so they get the, those 232 guys, and then they uh, muster from just the ordinary people an army of 7,000, which I get it, and, and Ben Hens is laughing at this. And so at noon, in verse 16, we kind of go back to Ben Had now out in his tent, and he's drinking himself silly. It says here he's drunk, he's drunk, and he's asking what's going on. They're saying, well, they've sent out, uh, you know, a little over 7,000 guys are coming out towards us. And so you can almost hear him in his drunken stupor say, well, you know, when you get out there, uh, whether they're coming for peace or whether they're coming to, to fight us, just take them all alive. 
which which is kind of stupid militarily to start with, because here you got warriors coming out, and, you, and you're not scared of them. So let's put ourselves at disadvantage and try to capture them instead of kill them. Because he's drunk, he just makes stupid choices, but it falls into you know the Lord's behind all this, and sure enough, they go out there to get him, and um. <clears throat> What's it say here? Uh, verse 19, verse 20, they struck them down. They, the Israel, Syria fled. Uh, Ben-Hadad uh, escapes on a horse. Uh, and they, they strike him with a great blow. And uh, so that's the end of the first battle there in uh, verse by verse 21. <clears throat> and I'm kind of not really watching, following my notes here, so I'm just kind of going as I... So, it, it, um, it, this is a, one of the things that strikes me about this is just the amazing grace of God. It, it, again, it's a little redundant because all grace is amazing when you consider who it's given to, right? But um, that, that God is with Ahab, a wicked king, uh, Israel, uh, northern Israel, a wicked nation, and the Lord is just giving them every reason to, to come back and to worship him, right? And... Uh, and, and and so I was reading about a guy, John Coombe, uh, I think was his name in Scotland, who had a business, and uh, this is back in like the 1700s. And uh, he in his uh, he was a merchant, and in his basement, for some reason, he had a lot of gunpowder, uh, and it was just open because you know, well, there's no OSHA for sure, you know, you, know, you, you live and learn, right? So. He sends, he's, he's at the window doing his, uh, ledger and he sends one of his young, uh, employees down there to get something and his employee is running down there with a, uh, torch or a match or something. He's looking and a spark goes in an open container, a keg of, of gunpowder and blows it, kills him immediately. Blows John Crumby out into the street through the window and, and doesn't have a scratch on him. And what he does after that, every anniversary of that, he would shut himself up in his bedroom for a whole day and he would just praise the Lord and thank him for mercy shown. It meant something to him. He 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 would not let grace shown to him pass. Right? How, how different than Ahab who God has graciously demonstrated himself to him and saved his life, tells him that next year he's going to come back to fight him and I'm going to, I'm going to save you then. And it's just like it goes in one ear and out the other. But as Christians, I hope we're like this John Crumby that we, we, we don't take that stuff lightly. When God does things for us, we acknowledge that. We, we, that's why we take the time, of course, you know, every quarter to just acknowledge the goodness of God and how good He is to us. But then, of course, is, is the, 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 uh, title of the message, uh, The God of the Hills and the Valleys, is that here we see, of course, where good, or you might say bad theology matters, where good theology matters too, right? Uh, your theology matters. The the uh, Syrians had some really bad theology. Now, Ahab did too, but they thought, well, uh, there's a lot of different gods. They have their gods in the hills have more power. Our gods in the plains will be stronger. And so they come back thinking something's going to change. And of course, nothing changes. But bad theology causes you not to understand how the world works. 
that we don't understand who God is properly, perhaps, you know. And, and, and so it's a, it's a fatal mistake here. Bad theology, uh, can be referred to basically as human reasoning. They, they're, they're, they're floundering in their spiritual blindness and coming up with all the wrong conclusions to their, to their, uh, death, to their destruction. And so this advice makes a mistake about both religion and politics. Things just, this world doesn't work that way. And that's what you got the world out there and all the silly stuff that you see on the media and, and so forth. The nonsense out there is because they don't know how the world works. They don't know how reality works because they've rejected the God who made everything. <clears throat> Certainly, changing military leaders and the location of the, of the, of the battle is not going to change anything if God's not in it. And of course, they're not crass secularists like a lot of people are today. They sincerely believe in their gods. But the right religion matters. That's another thing here that we're being told, right? You know, correct theology means you have the correct religion, as it were. There are not many ways to God. There are not many truths. Being sincere doesn't make things okay. And that means that when somebody is wrong, they, they can be told they're wrong. And uh, that that's not hating. That's just saying, look, I'm sorry, but the Bible is very clear about this. And so the whole point of this is that men might recognize the true God. I mean, God says that. He's not interested in getting along with other gods. He's not interested in everybody just doing their own thing and believing their own way uh, to heaven and that at the end he's going to be okay with that. And now as citizens, we have to live peaceably with all kinds of people, and that's all well and good, but we never compromise truth because there's only one, there's only one true God. There's only one truth. And this is where I wanted to... Uh, Quote uh, Ben Franklin. I thought this is this is an example of that. Of course, Ben Franklin was a, a deist, and this is classic deism: the idea that there's a God, but He's way too transcendent to care about us that much. Uh, he doesn't really communicate with us, and we're just left here to do our best. Which is one of the driving motivations behind a lot of the colonialists who who come up with the, the Constitution. They 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 felt it was their job to do as God has given them their gifts and they're to go out and do the best they can with it. And it's, it's not far off the truth. It's just that they uh, kind of ignored the Bible in the process a lot, in a lot of cases, or at least the, the, some of the other doctrines of the Bible. So he says, I'd rather suspect from certain circumstances that though the general government of the universe is well administered, in other words, he, he can see God in the universe, our particular little affairs are perhaps below notice. And left to take the chance of human prudence or imprudence, as either may happen to be uppermost. So, you know, God just lets us, see, it's like a big it's a, it's experiment to see what men will do with the intelligence and the gifts that he's given them. Let's just see what man, what, what kind of great society and world man can create. And you see a lot of that today. It's, we're trying to, we're trying to build something, but the problem is when you build something but you have rejected God, you can't build anything that's going to last and be of any real consequence. And so it's kind of like saying God handles the big affairs but leaves man to take care of himself. That's kind of what we've been Franklin saying there, right? That's classic deism. He's the God of the hills, but not the valleys. Well, perhaps we could go to the other extremes. There's another way to, to do this. 
and think of God as my little personal God. So Ben Franklin, God is so transcendent that he really doesn't care about me personally. Today, I think we've kind of gone the other way, and now God is really, all he cares about is me. And if I'm happy. And what whether he's got big plans or what else is going on there, I, I'm more concerned about me. And so he becomes our personal genie in a bottle. And you aren't concerned with his will, but you expect him to be concerned about your will. Whether God answers your prayers or not, though, he's still God. And this is what, he's a God that we must worship. And this is the thing that Ahab is just refusing to get. An atheist rightly uses against Christians because they have this mindset that God really only cares about me or, you know, that and, and that he's a good God because he gives me good things. And hey, you see that, and, and they're not impressed by it, skeptics. We're quick to say that God is good because he's answered some prayer that I've offered when I, when I was hurt and, or I lost something or something bad happened. But where are those who constantly proclaim God's, God is good even when he sends his tsunami or tornado? See, the atheists insist that such Christians are narcissistic, and rightly so. You know, that's why you hear people say, well, Christianity is just a, uh, it, it's a crutch. Because you can't deal with life. You need this to, to deal with life. But God is good whether he gives us what we want or, or not. Whether he afflicts us, uh, he does that. So we might demonstrate his goodness in a different way. And uh, I think he finds many of us whining in our beds. You know, why did this happen to me? And uh, I think that's a horrible testimony when we are so full of ourselves that we fall apart as soon as things go wrong. So the skeptic thinks God is unjust, or the God that we claim to believe in is unjust when he sends calamity because there's so few people out there proclaiming that no one is good, no, not one. There are not good people. Bad things don't happen to good people uh, because there are no good people. Uh, and, and so, they, they don't understand the word of God, of course. Who God is. They don't understand the God of the Bible either. See, God is always good. We must praise him whether he heals us or not. To make much of him when he gives us good things, and then to become downcast and depressed when uh, he doesn't, he kind of lets us fall into problems, is uh, to uh, question who really is the God here. So what we're seeing here, the good theology is that God is in charge of everyday's affairs of this world, not just religious things, whatever that might be, or spiritual things, because all things are given to us to be for the Lord. And so we, we have to be careful of dividing God into segments where um, we have great scars in the past, and, they, and we continually use them uh, to uh, as an excuse not to be strong in the Lord, because all you do is blaming the Lord. Instead of saying, well, you know, God gave me that past that I might demonstrate that, yes, the Holy Spirit can change people. The Holy Spirit is powerful. See, we like to think about the power of tongues or miracles, you know, and we, we attribute power to God in those kind of things. Uh, you know, turning the hurricane, you know, leave, look like it's going straight up, you know, out into the and the Lord, the Lord is gracious to us this time, right? But that's the power of the Holy, the Holy Spirit, the power of God. Let's let's 
I would like to demonstrate the power of God in somebody who was has a horrific past, who, who did not have a good upbringing, whose parents were maybe not as loving, or one of them maybe. And they, they dealt with some pretty awful things. You know, that I've come to find out that even in small churches, that you can bank on it. You can bank on it. That's happened to some. And yet, if, 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 the, if God has got power, can he not transform them to be able to live with that and yet be a strong, faithful, joyous Christian? Now, it doesn't mean that, that they don't have their own struggles. But does God have the power to transform a life and to give joy to everybody, to give peace to everybody? You know, you know instead of people said, well, you know, I... I I was uh, abused when I was a kid, so I you know I, I, I that's my excuse why I'm not a good parent. Well, no, I, I, that's not an excuse at all. So I you know I just I mean I don't want to. God's God's power is limited to the hill or to the valley. He's everywhere and everything in all of us. <clears throat> so that come down to verse thirty-five here. A certain man of the sons of prophets said to his fellow, now just to kind of know what's happening here. So they, they, they lose the second battle. They, they go into a, they run into a town. The walls fall down, kill a bunch of them. They, they get Ben Hayden. And he basically promises Ben Hayden, look, come out here, I'm not going to kill you. And Ben Hayden didn't. He said, well, great, you know, maybe. Because someone told him, says, you know, the, the kings of Israel, are, are a merciful bunch. I mean, compared to the, you know, Assyria and Syrians and all that, they were a pretty merciful bunch. And sure enough, uh, Ahab lets them live. <clears throat> and so, in verse 35, a certain man of the sons of the prophets and to his fellow, said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me please. And the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, now again, <clears throat> the, the poor man didn't want to, he wanted to be struck to the point that he wounds him. That there was a clearly he had been wounded. So this was not just a slap. And the poor man, this is one. He was a fellow prophet. So he says, "No." But the problem is, the Lord told you to do this. I'm asking you this is the Lord's request, and the man said, "Man, I can't do that. I don't want to be mean." So he says, "Okay, when you leave here, lion's going to tear you apart," which is what happened. Then the next guy asked, uh, he's not stupid, so he, he lets him have it, wounds him so that he has to wear a bandage over his eye or something like that, and he goes up to Ahab, and of course all that is a demonstration. <clears throat> so he says, um, he, in verse 39, and the king passed, and he cried to the king, and said, your servant went out in the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me, and said, guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you're going to pay a talent of silver, which is a, quite a bit. And as your servant was busy here and there, he's gone. You know, he, he escaped. And the king of Israel said to him, Well, so shall your judgment be. You've decided it yourself. And then he hurried, took off his bandage away from his eyes, and the king recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, What says the Lord? Because you have let go out of your hand, whom I have delivered to destruction, Therefore, your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people, and the king of Israel. And here's 
in one sense the the whole point of this chapter went out went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. You just don't see him getting right with God. He's just he's just upset because basically he's saying you're not going to die a natural death. You're dying prematurely, and uh, he's he's not happy about it. But that's that's as far as it gets. <clears throat> and so, uh, the, the last big point we'll make today is that uh, is it, what why is the Lord so hard on that prophet and so hard on Ahab because point here is that um, <clears throat> we are to deal with the enemies of God and the enemies of ourselves, which is sin. We are to deal with that severely. We can't play along, play around with it. That's what Ben-Hadad has been playing, playing around with his enemies. Ahaz has been playing around now with his enemies. And it's all going to lead to destruction. Both of them are going to end up dying for it. The Lord says, take, take sin Seriously. Take those things that disobey me seriously. And of course he says this in Matthew 18, and if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. Throw it from you. Hey, that's, I don't think, if, if we're spiritual people, we have to do that. I think in a sense, that is missing the point if we did it literally. Because your sin isn't in your eye or your foot. You know, your foot's not the thing that caused you to go where someplace you shouldn't have gone, right? It's your mind. But he's saying, cut it, mortify it. I think Paul expands on this, of course, mortification of the flesh. To say no to yourself. To grow in your love for Christ. But it's better to enter life that is, of course, eternal state, crippled or lame, than having two hands and two feet, but to be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into fiery hell. So it's the same severity I think we see as it was in the Old Testament there with, with um, Ahab. Uh, you, you, you better be serious about this. You better be serious about obeying me because those who aren't, this is what you've got to look forward to. And so it, it helps us define Christianity. You know, Christianity is just not us out there doing the best we can. Ahab's best wasn't good enough. Right? <clears throat> so we have to love God to the point that we will not compromise with those things that take our heart. Because the problem with the foot and the eyes and so forth is that it's demonstrating your love for the Lord is not as strong as your love for your these parts, these body parts, or what, what they're leading you to do. That's the whole point. If you actually love God more, you can say no to yourself. And I think it goes right back to what I said before. No matter what the Lord has dragged you through in this life, if he has transformed you, given you light, and you now love him, he has given you the, the love of God has shed abroad in your heart, you can say, I will not, I will be an overcomer of these things, as Romans 8 um tells us we are more than conquerors to those who love Christ. Uh, to those who Christ has demonstrated his love too. We're, more, we're to be more than conquerors. We, we have no excuses for, for blaming uh, God's providence on our present state. Right? And, and I've certainly met people like that. And, and I imagine we've all done that. The things we all have to struggle with. 
I think these things are pretty clear um, in, our, in, in the Word of God. Let me, let me stop there. Thank you, Father, for uh, this day. Thank you for, Lord, the grace has been shown to us. Lord, you have given us the promise of the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, that means something. You, you have uh, regenerated us. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, help us to think after the Spirit, to think after the Word of God, to be strong in the faith, to do the difficult things for you, not not to be cast to and fro, to be weak. Lord, and, and Lord, you know, none of us are going to be perfect, but Lord, help us to be strong. Help us people to see us and say, you know, that person loves the Lord. That person has solid faith. Or not for our own sakes, but that we might glorify you. And so we pray, Lord, for each one here that they might be faithful to Christ until that day you call them home. In Jesus' name, amen.